Ephesians 5, verse 1 through verse 21. I'm going to read this and then we will pray and get into it tonight. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. As Christ also had loved us and given himself for us, an offering, a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that nor no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever is manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this challenge and encouragement to redeem the time, to buy back the time. We pray that we would grow in you. We thank you for your instruction to us. Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? In Jesus' name, amen. Time is short. I think we would all agree. We look at our lives and we understand that it's a very short period of time that God has given us here on the earth. We got some news from some friends recently. The husband is, is my age, and he just got diagnosed uh, with cancer. And he's really battling now uh, this fight for cancer. It's uncertain what the days will, will bring. They just had their first daughter. Their first daughter is, is young, about, about a year old, completely healthy, really active, loves to rock climb, loves to hike. And all of a sudden, he's looking at potentially what are the days going to bring. And it puts life into perspective, doesn't it? I'm sure you can think of something like that in your own life or somebody that you're close to where all of a sudden their life has been cut short. And the scripture encourages us here to redeem the time. You think about buying back the time to take a coupon and to be able to redeem it, to take a, a rebate and redeem it. And so we have time. God has given us time, but we have to make the most of it and we have to redeem it. Not only are our lives short, but time for all of humanity is short. God tells us that he's going to judge the earth, that he's going to come back as the lamb, as the lion, who's going to bring his judgment. Ultimately, time is going to be wrapped up for, for all people. This section of scripture really tells us how to redeem the time, how to live for Christ. The challenge is our walk. From chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I beseech you, 
to walk worthy of your calling, which you are called. God is saying, this is the way that I want you to live as a believer. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, how's your walk going? And you're like, I don't know what you're saying. I think I'm walking just fine, right? What is being referred to spiritually when someone asks that question? How are you doing with Christ? How are you walking with Christ? It's really describing the lifestyle that we have as believers. I found chapter 4 and chapter 5 to be extremely challenging. I've heard the voice of God in the text saying, Eric, it's time to grow up. It's time to apply these things that you have learned. It's time to respond to the grace of God and allow God's grace to bring growth and depth in your life. So there's three things we're going to be challenged on tonight. The first is to walk in charity. That's number one. And then walk in transparency, which is number two. So walk in charity, which is love. Walk in transparency. And then finally, we're going to see to walk circumspectly. So verse one, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Children love to imitate. It's one of the ways that they learn. And sometimes it just melts your heart. And other times it's extremely humbling, isn't it? Like there's things that my kids imitate of me that I wish that they would never imitate, right? It's like, of all of the things that I do, why do you have to pick up on the bad things that that I do, right? But then there's other things that they do that are extremely cute and and endearing, but they're, they're great at it. I remember growing up and my dad mowing the lawn and I got my plastic lawnmower and I would take my shirt off just just the way he would take his shirt off and I'd be right behind him with my mower in stride, in step. I was imitating my dad, right? Now I have my son. He's going to be four in June and sure enough, he's got his plastic mower and it's sitting right on top of my mower in, in the garage And he was asking me this week, he's like, dad, are you going to mow your grass? Like he's looking forward to to mowing the grass. If if I'm working underneath the sink because we've got a leak in the sink or there's a problem with the disposal, I mean, he's right there and he wants wants to imitate and and be part of it. It's something that God has given to children. And what the Lord is telling us here is to imitate God. And you'll notice in verse one that the word therefore is included. It takes us to the end of chapter four, where we're encouraged to forgive the way that God has forgiven. This is chapter 4, verse 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So the way you see God forgive, the way the Father has forgiven you in Christ, then we imitate that in our own lives to extend forgiveness to others. We only imitate what we respect. We only imitate what we're in awe of. And so when God's in that proper place in our lives where he has our worship, then we begin to imitate him. It's a good thing to read through the gospels. God's saying, this is the way that I want you to live your life. Maybe you have this question tonight saying, should I do this? Should I act this way? Should I say this? Should I be engaged in this conversation? Well, would God do it? How would God respond? And there's so much challenge in verse 1 right there, isn't it? Say, God, I want to I be in love with you. I want to be worshiping you. I want to be in awe of you. To where I would just imitate you. Forgive like you forgive. Be kind like you're kind. Be truthful the way that you're truthful. Stand for the things that, that you stand for. In verse 2, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us. We've seen several things that we're to focus on in our walk. If you remember from chapel, chapter 4, to walk in unity, to keep the, the unity that God has given us. Also to walk in maturity, 
to fulfill the part in the body that God wants us to play to encourage other believers. We saw at the end of chapter 4 to walk differently or to be different than, than the world. And now God's saying, I want you to walk in love. I think that love is the most important part of our Christian life. To really understand the way that God loves us, the way that he's calling us to love one another, and those that don't know Christ as our Savior. I was really encouraged by this as I was studying this week. As we're challenged to walk in love, the example's Christ. As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. So you're loved by Christ. And I think when you're experiencing the love of Christ in your life, and you know that he loves you and how he loves you, then that gives you something tangible that you can taste, that you can feel, that you can experience, that you can then extend to other people. How are you loved by God? Fill that blank in. How, how does God love you? How has God loved you today? Has he been gracious to you? Has he been kind to you? Has he corrected you? Has he given you instruction? He's loved us by giving himself for us. It's sacrificial. He proved his love by laying his life down for us. Jesus said he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He knew he was going to be the down payment for our sins. He was going to pay that price, be that ransom for our sins, to pay it completely. And is that our concept of love? Okay, I'm committing to, to loving those around me. I love my neighbor as myself love a lost and dying world, then I'm going to give myself for them. I'm not expecting that they would serve me, but I am endeavoring to be able to serve them. Now, what's the condition in which we were in when Christ decided to love us? Not so good. We were still sinners, separated from God, dead in our sins, and that's when Jesus loved us. Now, this is what's mind-blowing to me, is the rest of this verse. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So what motivated Jesus to sacrifice his life upon the cross for us and for the world? Have you ever examined your own life and examined the world and gone, Jesus, what do you see in me that you would give your life? What did you see in the world that you would, would give your life? And do you know Christ's decision to love us wasn't first and foremost based on us? Like, What? That's what I've heard my whole life. No, look at, look at what it says here. It says, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus knew that by laying his life down for us, he was loving the Father. You don't have to raise your hand, but I bet you have somebody difficult to love in your life. God's little gift to you. God's little gift to me to, to grow us in this area of love. And we may be struggling to find the motivation in our hearts to love them, to lay down our, our lives for them. They don't deserve it. They're not appreciative. The, the list goes on and on. But the reason we love them is based on the Father. We're saying, I want my life to be a sweet-smelling aroma, a sacrifice that the Father goes, oh, this is a good smell. When Jesus sacrificed his life, he's like, oh, this is so wonderful that Christ would, would lay down his life. To prove this point to you, I want to bring up some verses from the gospel. Jesus, when he was 12 years old, you know the story, gets left at Jerusalem. Everybody goes home. He stays at Jerusalem. His parents finally discover him, find him. Can you imagine the panic of losing God in human flesh for three days? 
you've been given the responsibility to take care of God's son and you've misplaced him, they finally find him. What were you doing? What did Jesus say? I'm about my father's business. This is what his life was all about. He's saying, Father, I want to please you. I want to be this sacrifice unto you, this sweet-smelling aroma unto you. This stuck out to me in Luke. The seven sayings of of Christ upon the cross. When he died upon the cross, many of them he began with the word Father. So when he's laying his life down upon the cross, he's thinking about the Father, he's speaking to the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. See, it was love unto the Father. On the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Again, it's directed to to the Father. Luke 23, verse 46, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you see how he was expressing his love to his Father? In John chapter 2, when he cleansed out the temple, he said, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Why was Jesus filled with anger? Because God's people were taken advantage of and God's house was being polluted. He's saying, you can't do this in my father's house. Consider this, John chapter 5. Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. So this is how deep the connection goes between Jesus and the father. Jesus is like, I can't do anything unless I've seen the father do it. I'm modeling the father's love. So for us, as we try to figure out what does it mean to, to walk in love, how do I deal with this coworker that drives me nuts? You know, there's a few of them here on the church staff. I didn't want to admit it, but they just drive me crazy. <laughs> No, not really. It's a great staff to, to be able to, to, to work with. But maybe you have that, you know, and you're in the same cubicle. You're in the same office area, and there are fingernails on a chalkboard. And you've said, I have long lost the heart to ever love them. They're never going to come to Christ. Maybe you've got that neighbor. You know. Yeah, you know. That neighbor that's got that dog that's Lucifer incarnate, right? <laughs> And you've talked to them and you've challenged them and it doesn't seem like they're any closer to coming to know Christ as their Savior. That family member, oh, that family member, you can't disown them because they're family. But yet every time that you see them, you're like, I do not want to love them. Well, where does it come from? How do we get over that hurdle? It's not about the coworker. It's not about the neighbor. It's not about the family member. It's about the father. Go, Father, I realize you love me. And so now I love you. So I'm laying down my life for you by loving this person. One of the ways that we show our love to God is by loving people. God, it would be so easy to love you if it didn't involve people. And a lot of times our Christian life gets really isolated where it's just me and Jesus. And that's an important aspect of our relationship with the Lord, that we have privacy with him and closeness with him. But ultimately, if I'm drawing near to Christ, you know where that's going to end up? Christ is going to give me a heart for people. Christ is going to move me to love the way he loved, and it has everything to do with the Father. It's a fresh outlook on love. It's a fresh motivation on love. 
Verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. So a couple things are listed. Fornication, which is sexual sin, sexual immorality. Uncleanliness, which is impurity and covetousness. God says, don't even allow them to be named among you. Some translations will put it, not even a hint. Don't even allow there to be a hint of sexual immorality. We've been spending a lot of time on this. We just finished a series and and a conference, a lot of good teaching there to go back and look at. A fresh challenge from God's word tonight is it's not how close to the line can I get? You know, what is the definition? Give me the the biblical definition of sexual immorality and I'm going to get as close as I possibly could. I remember when I was doing youth ministry, that was always the question. You know, well, what exactly is fornication? And I'll get as close to the line as possible, you know, but I'll make sure I won't cross over the line. And, and that's not the heart of Ephesians 5 verse 3. It's saying, not even a hint. I don't even want to get close. I want to be close to, to the Lord. It's a good way to, to live our lives, keeping short accounts. But also uncleanness, this area of impurity and filthiness, covetousness. Easy things to have slip into our lives. And God's saying, not even a hint of of covetousness. And the key reason in verse 3 is because it's not fitting for you as saints. We're saints because of who we are in Christ. That's something that God calls the church as saints. It speaks of us being set apart. We're the sons and daughters of God. Remember, we're seated in the heavens. And God's saying, this doesn't match who you are. You're God's child. You're God's saint. You're God's son. You're God's daughter. I heard a story about a dad that every time he walked out of the door or his kids walked out of the door, he would look at him and say, remember who you are. As they're headed off to school, facing all the temptations, remember who you are. As he's headed off to work to deal with all the challenges, remember who you are. And that's the essence of what God is saying is remember who you are. You're my son. You're my daughter. If you're in Christ, that's already taken place. And it's not fitting for us then to walk in this manner anymore. It's fitting for us to walk in love. Verse 3 is the opposite of love. Covetousness is the opposite of love. Impurity is the opposite of love. Covetousness is the opposite of love. A few more things are listed. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So we have filthiness, foolish talking, and foul language. All three starting with an F. Filthiness. Just that foulness coming out of our hearts and our minds and our mouths. Foolish talking is where it's not necessarily blatantly rebellious, but it's just not profitable. How many times are just foolish words coming out of of my mouth? What's coarse jesting? This is not a phrase we use anymore. Do you ever talk with your kids and say, hey, look, Johnny, no more coarse jesting. <laughs> they look at you and they'd be like, what? What planet are you from? So, so what does coarse jesting mean? It's smoothly turning a phrase into something vulgar. So the topic doesn't have anything to do with something that's vulgar, but now you've found a way to turn it into coarse jesting. This is the mantra of the conversations throughout schools and the workplace, isn't it? A lot of workplaces are, who can be the best at coarse jesting? 
Who can take a topic over here and then turn it totally into a sexual innuendo? This is, this is our comedy. This is, you know, turn on the TV. This is the world that we live in. And it can be easy to slip into these things where our language is filthy. Our hearts are filthy. There's foolish talking and there's coarse jesting. And once again, God says, hey, this isn't fitting. It's not becoming of you. What's much better is giving of thanks. Wouldn't it be nice if giving thanks became more natural than foolish talking? I don't know about you, but foolish talking comes so easy for me. <laughs> and giving thanks can be very difficult, can be very challenging. So there's a spiritual discipline in these things. To say, I'm going to choose to speak of the things that I'm thankful for. God, you're so good. You're so faithful. You're so kind. You're so forgiving. You're, you're providing. Verse 5, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. There are three warnings like this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. So what does this mean? Does this mean that we're saved by works? Does it mean if we've struggled or are struggling in any of these areas that we're not saved? No. But it does mean if our lifestyle is of fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, or an idolater, and we're content in that lifestyle of sin, it may be evidence that we've never received Christ as our Savior. Because we're saved by grace, not through works, But once we're saved, Christ is going to bring conviction and transformation in our lives. As a believer in the child of God, you can't live in sexual sin and not be convicted by it. Because if the Spirit of God lives inside of you, there's going to be conviction. We can't live in a place of idolatry without the Spirit of God yearning, grieving, saying, look, Christ needs to be number one in your life. The way that I look at this verse is when someone comes and talks to me and they're broken, they're repentant, they're convicted over their sin, and they're saying, I don't know if God could love me. I don't know if God forgives me. I don't know if I'm the child of God. And I say, you know what? I believe that you are because you have trusted Christ as your Savior. You've believed Christ as your Savior. And what you're saying to me is evidence that the Spirit of God is living inside of you. But I talk to someone else and they say, look, I believe Christ is my Savior And I'm completely content living in idolatry. I'm completely content living in adultery and sexual sin. And in fact, God has taken his stamp of blessing and he's put it right there on my sin. I'm going to say, wait a second. Let's spend some time in Ephesians chapter 5. What does this say to you? You're not in a good place. You need to go do some business with Christ. You need to sort some things out with Christ. We teach this. We know this. We believe this. But we don't add to or take away from God's word. So when we come to these kind of warnings in scripture, we should let them stand. God's communicating something here. And we should let that stand. In verse 8, now we see to walk in transparency. So first walk in charity, walk in love. And now walk in transparency, walk in the light. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Think about this carefully. You once were darkness. That's an identity statement. That's who you are. But notice what it says now. 
but now you are light in the Lord. Christ is light, but now you are light. You're a lighthouse. You are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Christ lives inside of you, so you are light. That's who you are. And a big part of this passage is laying hold of our identity. Okay, I'm a saint. Okay, I'm the son of God. I'm the daughter of God. I'm, I'm light. This is who God has created me to be. You are light. So walk as children of the light. Let your lifestyle be one that reflects who Christ is and the light of God's love that's flowing out of you. Now, this is hugely impactful and life-changing. If we can remember this as we're going through our days, going, I am light. I'm the light of the world. So how should I speak? How should I respond to people? What's my job? What's my, my mission? What place has God put a hold of me? One of the things I think that really excites me about Ephesians 4 and 5 is it's a clear calling to all believers. You are in the ministry. How's God going to reach all of the unbelievers in our city? By taking believers and spreading us out. It's said that Christians are like manure. When we just stay all together, we really stink, don't we? But when you spread us out, it does a lot of good. And we need to gather together for times like this to be able to go back into the world to be a light. Do you know you live in the neighborhood God wants you to live to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ? The apartment complex, the roommates that you have, the job that you have, the family that you have, that's where the Lord's placed you. To be a light right in that place, to begin to pray for the lost, to reach out to them, to share what Christ has done in your life. In verse nine, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Don't forget the power of the Spirit. It's God's Spirit that's gonna be filling us to enable us to be light. There's no way we can be light apart from the Spirit. What's the emphasis? All goodness, all righteousness, and truth. The Spirit is leading us towards these three things, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. This is a good exercise to do. God, is this acceptable to you? Is this pleasing to you? Is this a sweet aroma to you? Oh, better shut this movie off. Oh, that conversation, it's not acceptable to you. Oh, that, that attitude of my heart. Takes some work, doesn't it? But it's well worth it. Lord, are, is this acceptable to you? Is this what you would want? Is this what you would desire? Part of walking in the light and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. This means not entering in to the unfruitful works of darkness. The word fellowship, it means coin in the end. In Greek, it means to share in common. As believers, we have fellowship in the light because we share in common Jesus Christ. And so this is saying, don't enter into fellowship with the darkness. Don't, don't be one with the darkness. Don't share things in common with the darkness, but expose the darkness through the light of God's love. This naturally happens as we walk out Christ in a lost and dying world. What does light do? It exposes. You turn on the light, it exposes the darkness. You walk into a workplace, you're a Christian, it exposes darkness. There's gonna be one or two reactions. Some will be drawn to the light and others will repel and run and hide. On your street, if you're living out the love of Jesus Christ, what's gonna happen? You're the light. It's gonna expose, some are gonna be drawn to it, some are gonna run away. In your family, it's just naturally going to happen as you're walking with Christ, not compromising, 
reaching out with the love of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, for it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So there's things that darkness is doing, that the world's doing, people that don't know Christ as their Savior. And God's saying, you know, don't even speak of it. It's shameful even to speak of it. You don't have to be an expert on all the wickedness of the world. Praise God, huh? We can be innocent concerning what's evil. We can be experts in what's good. Not that we're not aware, but we don't necessarily need to be speaking and sharing all of the things that the world are doing. In verse 15, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will get you light. Notice the order here. First, awake you who sleep, and arise from the dead. Here's an interesting paradox that we can be in Christ, saved, going to heaven, not necessarily walking in fornication or idolatry or filthiness, but spiritually, we're asleep. Spiritually, we're not awake to Christ. We're not awake to the mission that he's given us to do. And the Spirit of God would speak to our souls and he would say, awake. It's time. It's time to start walking. It's time to start maturing. It's time to start growing. It's time to start serving. Time to start reaching out. Awake. Awake. What I picture, the way that this happens, the way that souls are revived out of their spiritual slumber is being awakened again to the love of God. This isn't necessarily awake out of condemnation. This is awake because we've come to realize God's love for us. The times that I'm most awake spiritually is when I'm most aware of God's love. Amen? Isn't that when you find your soul most alive to Jesus Christ is when you're like, man, this is amazing. Christ loves me. He loves this world. God is wanting to work. He's given purpose to my life. And then all of a sudden, the soul starts to come awake. When my soul becomes most dormant spiritually, it's when I'm selfish, when I'm focused on myself, when I can't see past my own shoelaces. Spiritually, it just lulls me to sleep. I'm convinced that if Satan can't get us to deny Christ, he'll do everything he possibly can just to lull us to sleep. Just stay right there, Christian. Be asleep. And also it says, awake from the dead. Not that they're not saved, but they're spiritually not alive. They're in this place where they're almost comatose. One of the things that we see happening now is people go into medical-induced comas. There's some that are in that place for years. They're not dead, but it's hard to say that they're alive. They're on life support. And sometimes we're just on spiritual life support, aren't we? And someone would walk by and go, Hey, well, it looks like Eric's dead. But then someone else would go, no, he's still breathing. He's on life support. And God would come and say, awake, awake. Redeem the time. You're on the planet for such a time as this. God wants to use you. If you'll rise up to that place that he's calling you to, if not, he'll use somebody else. He's not limited upon us, but come on out of that sleep. Growing up in southern Oregon, there was the father-son fishing trip that also involved catching some frogs. 
they were some big frogs. And what do you do on a father-son fishing trip but cook the frogs and eat their legs and your flannel, right? And the dads are like, yeah. So I got my education on how you cook a frog. They've got legs. They can jump really good. So you'd think they'd just jump right out of the pan. And that's why you get the water right out of the river, right out of the pond that they're used to. And you put it and you turn your cook stove real slow. You don't want to do it too hot because it'll just jump out. And very slowly, very patiently, you warm up that water where they don't even realize what's taking place. And before you know it, they're dead, right? And that's what happens to us spiritually. I wonder if our grandparents' generation could come and be in the sanctuary tonight, what they would say about our culture and our spiritual condition. Maybe our great-grandparents. Can you imagine believers that have gone before us? I've been astounded to see the cultural change that has taken place just in the last 10 years. Maybe it was happening slowly for a really long time, where you hardly notice the darkness, where you hardly notice the cultural change. And then somewhere along the line, now it's picking up speed. And the accelerator is being, being hit. All kinds of things that are, that are taking place. And in some way, it kind of excites me. And you're saying, I don't get it. I don't understand. Because the middle ground of gray is being diminished. It's light and it's darkness. Which team are you on? Are you going to walk in light? Or are you going to walk in darkness? Are you going to walk in transparency? Are you going to be awake spiritually? If there was any time for the church of God to be awake in God's love, it's now. That's an exciting time to be a believer, amen? amen? What if Christ comes back in our generation? If he does, I know he's wanting to gather as many people to himself. If he doesn't come back in our lifetime, he still wants to gather as many people to him as himself. I bet you there's some people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the coffee shop that you go to, the grocery store, that have never accurately heard the gospel. Never accurately heard who Jesus is and what Christ has done. And God's saying, awake. The last thing we see tonight is to walk circumspectly. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Circumspectly has the idea of a circle. Where you're aware of the fact that you're in a spiritual battle. We can't walk around in this place of being naive as fools, but as wise. Where does wisdom come from? It comes from the fear of the Lord. Redeem the time because the days are evil. God's saying, buy back the time because the days are evil. What really stood out to me in verse 16 is God doesn't say, redeem the time because your life is short. He says, redeem the time because it's really, really dark. And because it's really, really dark, God wants our lives to be really, really bright. Amen? So take every opportunity to love Christ. Take every opportunity to share Christ. Every opportunity to, to make a difference. Redeem the time because the days are evil. Tells us how to do that. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So part of walking circumspectly is we're walking in wisdom and we know what God's will is. Here it is. Are you ready for God's will for your life? You're saying, he can't give this to me in one verse. Well, God does. He gives it to us in one verse. And don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. 
So what's God's will for our lives to be under the influence of the Spirit? And no other substance clouding the influence of the Spirit in our lives. God says, don't be drunk with wine. The teaching on alcohol is very clear in the scriptures. Don't cause someone to stumble in drinking alcohol and don't be drunk with wine. So anytime that you're drunk, you know that you're not in the place that God wants you to be. Why? Because it's hard for the Spirit to lead you accurately when you're drunk with alcohol. Talk to a police officer in our community and he'll tell you how many problems come from people being drunk, the damage that happens in people's lives, the damage that happens in people's families. So let's just, what do you think about marijuana? You know, do we have to talk about that? Yeah, let's probably talk about that a little bit. Okay. Is it legal to be drunk in your house if you're not driving? Yes, it's legal. You're not going to get arrested for being drunk in your house if you're not driving. Is it legal to smoke marijuana in Colorado? Yes, but is it biblical? So I did a little bit of research last night on marijuana. You might be aware of this, but the THC levels have soared in Colorado primarily because it now is legal. This is what they estimate is that it's three times as potent as it was 30 years ago. So if you're a former hippie, and you're like, hey, I survived it in the 60s. It's not the same pot as you were smoking in the 60s. Science has advanced, and it's much more potent than it was. The studies are now showing that someone smokes pot that it actually does brain damage. It's not unknown to this. And you say, I know this. I've been watching people smoke pot for years. I mean, it's like, I don't know why it took science to tell us this, right? But it's evident. Like, you read the science, you do the research, and it's actually doing damage to your brain. It's causing literal brain damage. The immediate effects of taking marijuana include rapid heartbeat, disorientation, lack of physical coordination, often followed by depression or sleeplessness, Some users suffer panic attacks and anxiety. Now, does that sound like the environment of the Holy Spirit? Does that sound like what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life? Is that love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering? Smoking marijuana is 50 to 70 percent more cancer-causing than smoking tobacco. So you think about how hard people have worked in our country and our society to show the dangers of smoking tobacco— But now everybody's like, oh, it's organic. It's right from the garden, you know? Have you guys, like, noticed things are changing? We took our kids snowboarding up at A-Basin, and so many people smoking pot right in the parking lot, right? They're just like, yeah, this is is great. It's organic. So here's a little more research for you. Do you know that cannabis is a weed? That's why it gets its name weed. This is incredible stuff, isn't it? So when did weeds come into God's creation? When did God give weeds as a curse of the fall? So it's a result of sin. That's the reality of it. And it's this weed. God never intended it to be smoked. So God created it, but he didn't necessarily create it for you to be able to smoke it. 
a few more th- things that we see taking place with this. For, for, marial, for regular marijuana uh, users, it changes the st- structure of sperm cells, deforming them and causing men to be sterile for a period of time. I bet the guys didn't tell you that when they were selling pot on the streets, right? So, but here's the reality of all of this. If you're smoking pot, none of that's going to change your mind. If that's what you're into and that's what you like, or alcohol's your thing and you get drunk on a regular basis, none of that is going to change your mind. But you know what? This might. You're not in the will of God. If you're a believer, that's not God's will for your life. And his will for your life is for you to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And some of you may really get angry about this because you're like, you know what? I don't believe that pot is keeping me from being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. When I look at what marijuana does to someone, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's got better for you. And it's not guilt, and it's not condemnation, and it's not shame. But if you want to change the world, and you want to redeem the time, don't spend your time smoking pot. Don't do it. Instead, take that budget that you were spending on smoking pot, and go find poor people and feed them. Go find some missionaries to be able to to support. Take that money and be able to invest it in the kingdom. You might be saying, I don't know that I could live without this. Allow the Spirit of God to come and to be able to lead you and fill you and empower you. What's really powerful about this verse is it says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, this is continue being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why do we need to regularly be filled up with the Holy Spirit? Is because we're leaky vessels. So every day, throughout the day, every moment of the day, God, would you fill me? to live this life, to live this walk, to be in love, to be walking in transparency, to be walking circumspectly, to be redeeming the time. And then notice the fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's so much better than any substance that we could put into our bodies. So speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. We're going through our days worshiping God. That's what's coming from our hearts and flowing out of our mouths. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're worshiping, we're singing, we're literally singing to the Lord throughout our days. There's a song on our heart, a song on our lips. God, restore that song into our hearts and our minds. And then we're going throughout our days just giving thanks. God, I'm so thankful. You're so good to me. And then notice verse 21, and this is gonna set the stage for next week, submitting to one another in the fear of God. It gives us this attitude of saying, I'm going to yield to one another in the fear of the Lord. The absence of pride, the presence of humility in our lives. Doesn't these 21 verses just make you want to go for it? Go for it. God, I want to be an imitator of you. I want to love. Jesus, I want to learn to love the way you loved. Maybe you've been living in love basically just because of your love for people. You really do like people. And there's something to that. But you know, there's something even more. Saying, Father, I love you. And I'm choosing to love people out of my love for you. Have it be focused in in the Father. And say, I'm going to walk in the light. I want my life to be as much as possible in the light of God. 
redeeming the time, walking circumspectly. Do you think God would say in his word, be filled with the spirit if he's not ready to pour out his spirit into our lives? If drugs or alcohol is the thing for you, can I encourage you to turn that over to the Lord and ask God to fill you with the spirit? Because the spirit's not gonna come while we're holding on to the drugs and the alcohol. If you decide tonight to flush your marijuana, you will not be the first one at Rocky Mountain Calvary to do that. I'll tell you that. Isn't that cool? God's good. Saying, you know, I don't need this in my life. I'm going to utilize the facilities here at RMC. I'm going to flush this down the toilet before I go out tonight. If you've got your, your stash of hard liquor and you know you get drunk on a regular basis, man, let it go. In confidence that God's going to fill you with the Spirit. Is it anger? Is it bitterness? Let it go and let God fill you with the Spirit. But I know this, as we come to the communion table, broken before the Lord, asking that he will fill us, he'll fill us afresh. And we can leave tonight in a place worshiping God, having a song on our heart, giving thanks to him. So let's stand and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the freedom that's brought in being in the light of your love. God, we all have something. We've all got something that is preventing us from being filled with your spirit, that's preventing us from fully being in fellowship with you and being used by you. And may your word just have its effect in our hearts and lives. Would you bless communion tonight? Would you minister to your people? And we ask as a congregation, God, that you would empty us, but that you would also fill us. Would you fill us afresh with your spirit? God, I pray for those that are wrestling with alcohol or with with drugs, that they wouldn't hear condemnation, that they wouldn't be beat up. But Father, they would hear your voice, that you've got so much more for them. We do ask that you would take us to greater maturity, greater growth for your glory. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.